Welcome, my friends, to this edition of the History of Christianity, Season 2. Today, we continue looking at the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation, and that means we will continue to look at events around the life of Martin Luther. If you'll remember from last episode, we left Luther at the end of the Diet of Worms. He had been told by the emperor that he was to recant from his beliefs, and he had to make a decision about whether or not he was going to stick to his guns and stick with what he believed or if he was going to get try to get back in the good graces of the empire and the church. And he chose the former. He chose to stick to his guns. And so things are not looking all that great for Luther right now. After Luther's actions at Worms, the emperor was ready to take action despite Frederick the Wise's promise of safe conduct. Once again, these promises of safe conduct are not worth much at all. The emperor was ready to get Martin Luther, and Luther was too smart for that. He knew that was coming. He knew that that promise of safe conduct didn't mean anything, and he was prepared for it. By the time Charles V was able to get the Diet to agree with him, Luther was gone. And the Diet did eventually come out against Luther. Their proclamation is known as the Edict of Worms. In part, it states, Luther is now to be seen as a convicted heretic. He has 21 days from the 15th of April. After that time, no one should give him shelter. His followers also are to be condemned, and his books will be erased from human memory. Now, that sounds pretty strong, but it's not exactly as, as obvious. It's not exactly the way things played out. Frederick had an armed band abduct Luther and take him to safety at Wartburg Castle. Even Frederick didn't know where Luther was. Rumors began to circulate that he was dead. Frederick was ready for this. He knew that this promise of safe conduct wasn't going to be upheld. So when the tide turned and he knew that Luther was in danger, he got him out of there. And they put, held him up in this castle, and Frederick didn't even want to know where he was. He didn't want to have to lie about it. He didn't want to have to be under any pressure to tell it. So he didn't know where he was. Most people didn't know where he was. There was even the idea out there that he was dead. But he was in hiding, and it was a good thing because they were certainly coming to get him. Luther grew a beard and spent his time writing. He worked on his German translation of the Bible. This is very important because for a long time, the church did not have translations of the Bible in the vernacular of the people. It was in Latin. And so you had to either be a church leader who had been educated or an educated person who happened to know Latin to be able to read it. If you couldn't read it, you just had to take a word of those who were in leadership. As human beings, we're going to get some things wrong in our understanding of God's word. So it would be good for everybody to be able to read it. But when you have corrupt leadership, that's a really bad thing because they control 100% the flow of information if they control the reading of God's word and being able to actually read it for yourself. And that happened for a long time, but certainly Luther is not of that opinion. He made sure all of his writings were translated into German so the people could read them. And he also is working now on his German translation of the Bible. Very, very important. While Luther was in exile, his followers in Wittenberg continued the work of Reformation. So things didn't just grind to a halt. By this point, Luther has quite a bit of people that are on his side. Those that were in the university with him and those who had read his works. There were many in Germany that, that followed him and went along with his teachings. They continued to further this movement through grassroots efforts, through the people, the common people. And it certainly was gaining and picking up steam. At this time, the implementation of Luther's Reformation began in the religious life of Wittenberg. 
So we're going now from theory. We're going now from here's some things to think about. We're going now from here's a different way of thinking. We're, we're going the next step. We're actually going to put these things into practice. What are the practical applications and implications of this Reformation thinking and teaching? And how is that going to affect the, life, the religious life of all of the people? And that's starting to play out now. A number of monks and nuns left their monastic life and were married. That was part of Luther's teaching. You didn't have to go and be unmarried. It wasn't required to be in leadership. So as these monks and nuns began to realize this and they turned away from the Catholic Church and turned to Luther, they decided, you know what, let's go get married. Let's not continue to live in a way that we don't have to. They were doing it out of obligation, obviously, and they no longer felt obligated. So that changed things. Worship was simplified and German was substituted for Latin. Once again, the language of the people, being able to understand what you hear, being able to understand the words that you are saying, to, to be able to actually know what you're singing about. That's important, and it wasn't happening. It's so weird for us to think about that, to think about going to a church and hearing everything in a language that you don't understand and yet still have to go and be a part of it still have to go and support it that's a it's a concept that we frankly would think is just absolutely crazy and it's not it is crazy it's not a good thing at all and that's changing now so it's changing a lot of things people are starting to understand what the church is teaching and what the words to the worship songs are even and that's a big big deal another change masses for the dead were abolished along with days of feasting and abstinence. So these obligations to do these things in a, a religious obligation went away. You don't need masses for the dead. The dead, their eternal salvation is sealed based on their relationship with Jesus Christ, not based on something they do through the church, not based on their own works. And so you don't need to do things after they're dead. That's, that's already settled. That, that's going away. And then the days of fasting and abstinence. Not to say that people in Luther's system of belief were saying that there was never a time to, be, for, to appropriately fast or to, for it to be appropriate to fast or appropriate to abstain from things. But to do it as a religious obligation, for it to just be a works-based thing that you have to do at certain points in time, that's not the intention of those activities. And so those went away as far as them being a set day of feasting or day of fasting, a day of abstinence that everybody observes at the same time, that, that went away. And then communion was offered in both kinds, meaning to give the laity the cup as well as the host. So another big change from what was being practiced in Catholicism once again, getting away from everything being centered on the leadership and back to where it was supposed to be with the leaders being servant leaders and the emphasis being on the, the people, the, the people that attended the services, the people that were committed as followers of Jesus Christ. Things were making a big change, and this is all while Luther's in exile. Things haven't ground to a halt the way the Pope and the emperor would have liked. And in fact, they're actually building up momentum. As you might suspect, Luther had a response to what he saw was going on. At first, Luther approved of these changes. He thought that they were very good and he supported them. But soon he began to question the excesses that were taking place at Wittenberg. He 
was good with them to a point, but then he started to see some things that he thought was maybe going a little bit too far. When followers began tearing down images of saints and churches, Luther recommended moderation. When they began to say, you know what, well, we, we don't need to worship or venerate these saints. We don't need to have them even in the church. And they began to tear them down. They began to tear the churches themselves down. Luther said, whoa, 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 whoa hold on. That, that may be going just a little too far. Then three laymen appeared at Wittenberg, declaring themselves prophets and claiming to have direct revelation from God. They asserted they had no need of scripture. These guys came in and they said, we have a direct word from God. He has told us this is what we are to come and say. And they came to Wittenberg. They weren't from there. They came to Wittenberg to declare this prophetic message. Well, that's a problem, especially a problem for Luther, because he's not going to go along with that, that there's any new revelation from God. This was enough to bring Luther out of hiding. He's, he's now to the point of saying, wait a minute, we're, we're really going off the rails now. I've got to get over there. He sent word to Frederick that he would be returning to Wittenberg and did not count on Frederick's protection in doing so. But as it happened, several political circumstances favored him. The quirks of history, the things that we look at as being maybe coincidental or fortunate, are actually things that God foresaw and he made plans. God knew the right time for this to happen. Any other time in the church history from the time the church was established until this time, especially after the, the empire got involved with Constantine, there would not have been a chance for, for Luther to get through that. He wouldn't have made it anywhere near as long as he had so far. It would never have been allowed to spread the way that it did. But circumstances keep coming along that favor Luther. And at some point you have to say, okay, this is more than just coincidence. There seems to be design behind this. And there is. God knows what's going to happen. He, it says in Scripture that in the fullness of time, Christ came. It was the perfect time for him to come. And this, this event in history is, I think, similar to that. God knew the perfect time for Luther to come and bring reform to the church that was much needed. And we see favorable situations occurring all through this that I believe bears that out. This is a time of unrest. Charles V wanted to stamp out Luther and his heresy, but found himself threatened by more political adversaries. It kind of seems like this happens on a regular basis, really, as you go through this. The Pope had the same thing. He wanted to deal with Luther, but something else stopped him. He wanted to deal with Luther, but he needed Frederick to be on his side. He wanted to deal with Luther, but something more important came up. Same thing with Charles. He would like to spend his time just getting rid of this altogether. He was a staunch Catholic. He was very much in favor of, of Catholicism and support of the, of the leadership of the church and didn't want anything to do with anyone who'd been blank, who had been labeled a, a heretic. But he couldn't do it because some things started happening that he had to take care of. First, Charles V's most constant rival, Francis I of France, they started to have these wars. From 1521 to 1525, they were repeatedly at war. Instead of being able to deal with Luther in Germany, he had to deal with France and Francis I. And there was a four-year time frame that wars almost never stopped. They just kept happening. At the Battle of Pavia, Francis I was captured by imperial troops. This seemed to bring an end to the conflict. So finally, okay, we've been doing this for four, four years, but we've got the guy now. We've, we've captured him. And so now, is it time to go ahead and deal with, with Luther? Well, a few months before the Diet of Worms, 
Pope Leo X had died. So the emperor's still around. Remember, we had, had to have a replacement emperor come in. That's, that took place with Charles. Now the pope's gone. He dies. And there's a new pope, and it's Adrian VI. He was a pope that was eager for reform. So you might be thinking, well, that's going to favor Luther. But it really didn't because he, while he wanted reform, he was not going to go along with any deviation from traditional orthodoxy. He wasn't in for reform in theology or the teaching of the church. He was in for more reform of the practices of the church, some of the corruption that had taken place. So a good thing that you got a guy that wants reform, but it really doesn't help Luther because he's got radical ideas about the teaching of the church and Adrian's not going to go along with that. Adrian brought a program of reform which he hoped would respond to the critics of the church while silencing Luther. His thinking was, okay, there is some validity to needing reform, and I agree with that. So I'm going to bring around a more, way more moderate form of reforming the church. And hopefully what that'll do is it'll, it'll make people realize, okay, we're serious about dealing with this. And we don't have to go to the extreme step of following Luther and leaving the church. We can stay in the church. We can be a part of this reform movement, and we don't have to go along with Luther, and therefore people stop listening to Luther. It was a good, it was actually a good idea on his part, but it didn't really help out because Adrian died just a year and a half later. He didn't make it very long. His successor was Clement VII, and unfortunately, he returned to the policies of Leo X, which were corruption, putting their efforts towards things that really weren't helpful for the church and it had more to do with just building up their holdings and their buildings and making everything really spruced up and nice, but not really dealing with people on a real level that would help them. And to be more involved with the Enlightenment movement than really being involved with anything that had to do with religious things. So we're right back where we started, a year and a half after Adrian is named Pope. He's dead, and now Clement's come in, and, and he's taken them back to not such a great time. There was soon serious friction between Clement VII and Charles V. This prevented the Catholic Church from taking coordinated action against the Reformers. So once again, there is a time where something could be done about the Reformation movement, but now you've got the emperor and the pope are not on the same page anymore. The emperor's not liking what the pope's doing. They're clashing. And as a result of that, you can't then turn and join forces against a common enemy if you are just at odds all the time. That sheltered this reform movement once again. And once more, the, the circumstances that favor Reformation just keep on happening in history. If any one of them didn't happen just the way they did, it, would have been, it could have very easily turned out differently, but it didn't. And then war comes to the empire. Charles V signed a peace treaty with Francis, giving Francis his freedom and returning him to his throne. So Francis gets to go back home. He's back on the throne in France. But the conditions of the treaty were very harsh. As soon as he was able, Francis appealed to Pope Clement for support against Charles. Francis knows that Pope Clement is not getting along with Charles, so now he's got an ally that he can use against Charles. So he got, he got Clement on his side, and together they declared war, war on Charles. So Francis, he got away. He got to go back home. Everything's cool. And I mean, just as soon as he could, he goes right back after Charles, and he says, all right, this time it's not just me you're dealing with. You're dealing with the Pope, too. Well, in 1527, imperial troops marched on Rome. It didn't work out so great for Clement. Clement was forced to flee to Castile Sant'Angelo, leaving Rome to be sacked by the invaders. So once again, Rome gets sacked. Once again, the church and the holdings there get invaded. And 
these popes didn't really end up doing so great when they tried to go out to war or tried to repel somebody that came against them. It usually didn't turn out well for them. Many of the invaders were German and Lutheran, so they had an extra little measure of revenge they wanted to get. They felt like they were going up against the church that was trying to hold them back, and it was a sign to them that God was on their side and was on their cause. And so you've got these guys that are very zealous and very zealous religiously. And again, throughout history, that's usually a recipe for there being problems, and it turned out that way here too. Then in 1528, a French army came to the Pope's aid. So his ally is going to try to come and help him. They forced the invaders to withdraw, so they get them kicked out. In 1529, Charles agreed to peace, first with the Pope and then with Francis. Now we've got peace again. 1528, 1529, here we go. We're, we're back on the same page. Maybe now's the time we can deal with the Reformation. But that's not the way things turned out either. With all of this settled, Emperor Charles prepared to take strong measures against Luther and his followers. Okay, we're all squared away. There's no problems in the empire anymore. We're on the same page. France is good. Charles V, his emperor, is good. And, and the Pope is good. Now let's deal with Luther. Well, the next quirk of history happens. But then the Turks attacked Vienna. So these the Turkish forces decide, okay, here's the time for us to attack. The fall of Vienna would open Germany to an attack by the Turks, and it would open up, it would make very vulnerable the empire. So Charles knows that can't happen. Charles and his German subjects set aside their religious differences to join forces in expelling the Turks. So the guys, the people he wanted to go up against, the nation that has Lutheranism. Now, once again, just like with Leo and Frederick, they had to come together, put aside their religious differences in order to deal with a bigger issue. And this is a real big issue because there's an invading force coming, and they certainly didn't have the luxury to be fighting one another at this time. The advancing German armies forced the Turks out of Vienna and ultimately to withdraw. So they were able to come together. They got the Turks out and then made them withdraw. So everything was good again. But then Charles says, okay, we we worked together to get rid of the Turks, but guess what? I haven't forgot about the Lutheran and stuff, and now I'm coming to get you. I am coming to Germany, and we're going to wipe out the Lutheran heresy once and for all. During the intervening years, several events had taken place, so things have changed from when Charles years ago had first wanted to deal with this, uh, and it put the cause of the Reformers in a better position than it had been. There was going to be a rebellion to deal with. In 1522 and 1523, a rebellion of knights took place under the leadership of Franz von Sickingen. So this, this uprising came along. They weren't happy with the way they were being treated. These knights saw Luther as champion of the German nation, so they attacked Trier, claiming to be doing so in defense of the Reformation. Luther did nothing to encourage this action. Luther wasn't about getting armies to invade or attack anyone. That was not his deal. But again, these people in Germany at the time, they mixed Lutheranism as both a religious movement, but also a German nationalist movement. And if they could ally themselves with an enemy that was a common enemy, then they would be on the same page. At least that's the way it looked to them. So if, Lutheran, if Luther and his followers are dealing with the the church that is also the enemy the the power structure that is in place is also the enemy of these knights then we can be a champion for the german nation we can get some sympathy on our side 
And we can also say then that we are defending Reformation. That's going to get even more people on our side. But again, Luther, he wasn't about this. This was not his deal. The Knights were defeated. Luther and his colleagues saw this as a great tragedy, proving that one should submit to the established authorities. Luther, though he was the father of the Protestant Reformation, his heart was never to buck authority. He, he really didn't like that part of it. it. It caused a lot of problems for him. It caused hardship to even move forward. He, he didn't want to stand against the given authority. He, he really believed that God put people in authority. He put the, the leadership in the political world in authority and also in the church. And so it was worth reluctance that, that Luther went against them. And this, in his mind, the fact that these knights were defeated in their cause, that just reinforced what he already believed was true. In 1524, a widespread peasant rebellion broke out. This is going to be a problem. Many among the peasantry believed that the teachings of the reformers supported their economic demands. So once again, a group takes what Luther is intending to be a reformation of the church, and they apply it to their own cause, which Luther does not see. Luther himself refused to make this application of his teachings to the political realm, but there were others who disagreed. Luther didn't go along with this. He, he really did not see what he had established as being very applicable in the political realm. But there are other people that saw it as being going beyond just religion, but there, there are cultural and political things about this that need to be dealt with. And so they were very willing to apply what Luther taught to their own cause. One of these was Thomas Munster. He claimed that the present revelation of the Spirit was more important than Scripture. Once again, and this happens, it's happening still to this very day. People that come along and try to put what they believe above Scripture, they've gotten a new revelation from God. It goes above Scripture, or at least at, at the very minimum, it's on the same level as Scripture. That's always going to be a problem. It's going to cause issues with orthodoxy within the church. It, the, the teachings that come about as revelation from God, quote unquote, because it's not, that comes above Scripture, past the writing of the Scriptures, that is to be rejected by Christians. Now, that's, that doesn't mean people writing commentaries about the Scripture or teachings based on what the Scripture says. I, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about people that come along. I'll give you one example, the Mormons, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Their founder, Joseph Smith, claimed that an angel came and showed him golden tablets on which were written Scripture that was on the same level as the Bible, as the Book of Mormon. They say that it is equal with Scripture. In fact, they, they put the Scripture that we have in a, in below that because they say it's not translated correctly, even though it is. Anybody that can read Koine Greek, which I can, knows that it is. Any group that comes along that tries to put something on the same level as God's Word, that's to be rejected by Christians. It's not. The Scripture is supreme above all that. It's, it's supreme above my thinking about it. It's supreme above my teaching about it. It's supreme above theological systems based on it. Scripture reigns supreme. And so this guy comes along and he wants to, and that's what all these people do. They want to put Scripture underneath what they say because then they don't have any authority to, to sit there and say, well, wait a minute, what you're saying is wrong. The, they can just say, well, no, this is something new God's given me. You have to disregard the other stuff. And that's, that's not going to sit well with Luther at all, and it shouldn't have. He believed that all those born again by the Spirit should join together to create a theocratic community to bring the kingdom of God on earth. They believed in the physical 
manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth. We know that that's going to be, that is a reality that will happen, but it will happen in at the end of time. It's not going to happen now. Now, the kingdom of God is on the earth, but it's in the hearts and lives of human beings. It's not a physical kingdom, but they wanted to create that. Luther rejected this teaching and forced Munster out of Saxony, but Munster returned to join the peasant rebellion. So he sees this peasant rebellion that Luther has rejected as being his inroad to getting the common people on his side, and so he joins forces with them. And things did not go well for the peasants or Munster during this rebellion. This uprising had a measure of religious inspiration. We talked about that. In their 12 articles, the peasants made both economic and religious demands and sought to base their claims on the authority of Scripture. you got Munster who's trying to say, well, I've got stuff that's, uh, that goes above Scripture. The peasants are saying, no, we believe Scripture is supreme, but Scripture agrees with us. And so you need to do what we're saying because Scripture is on our side. They concluded by declaring that if any of their demands contradicted Scripture, they would be withdrawn. Same thing Luther said. Same thing a lot of these people through the years have said. This is what I believe. Show me where I'm wrong. If I'm wrong, I'll step back and say, you're, you know, you, okay, you're right. I, I was incorrect about this. And it almost never happens that anybody tries to show them where they're wrong. They just tell them, shut up, you're wrong. And that's certainly going to be the case here. Nobody in leadership is wanting to hear these peasants. Though Luther did not see any relationship between his doctrines and the rebellion, the peasants themselves did. So they didn't have to have Luther confirm it. They believed it. Though sympathetic to the oppression of the peasants, Luther tried to persuade them to pursue a peaceful course of action. Luther wanted to help them. He realized that they weren't being treated correctly. He, he wasn't going to go along and say, okay, well, my teaching supports your cause. But he was willing to say there needs to be some changes in the way the peasants are treated. But he also realized that if they were too aggressive, then that wasn't going to, they weren't going to be listened to. In fact, things were going to go very badly for them. He tried to tell them, but they weren't in the mood to listen. Luther next called on the princes to suppress the movement. Later, when the rebellion led to much bloodshed, Luther urged the princes to be merciful. He came to those princes and said, this needs to stop. This is getting out of hand, but you need to be merciful to the people. You're, don't go out and slaughter a bunch of them. Well, those princes didn't care about that. They went out and slaughtered a bunch of them. That's an easy way to take care of a rebellion, just kill a bunch of them. And the rest of them will either die or they'll get over it. And that's what they did. They didn't. None of these people are listening to Luther. They, none of them wanted to hear him. They maybe wanted to use his ideas for their causes, but they didn't want to hear actually what he had to say about any of it. His words were ignored, and it is said that more than 100,000 peasants were killed. That is a lot of people. I don't know if those numbers are correct, but that is a lot of people. And they were slaughtered without any regard for human life, just slaughtered. Can you blame them for wanting to stand up for themselves? No. Should they have listened to Luther? Yes. You can't put it on them, well, you, you had this coming to you, but you can say you should have expected that this was what was going to happen. These princes, are, they're not, they don't care about these peasants. They, they don't see value in their lives. They feel like they come a dime a dozen. If I kill 100,000 of them, there's 100,000 more of them around. And that's what they did. It's, it's sad. It's sad to look back in history and see the way human beings were treated for a long time. I'm sure every one of us could have at least some example of a way we've been mistreated. Maybe not all of them in an extreme thing, but people are fallen human beings and they don't treat each other well. But we're living in a time of unprecedented justice and people being treated better 
than they have through the through the years. You look back in history and you see no regard for these human beings. It didn't matter who they were. They didn't care about them. Things have changed for the better. Are they all the way better? Is, are we ever going to have a time on this earth that things are are completely just and completely the way they should be? No, we're not because we're fallen. And we live with the ramifications of the fall. And part of that is people don't treat each other right. But we do see progress. We see things are better. And while you can make a stand for a cause if you believe someone's being mistreated, there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, the Bible would support us standing up for those who are mistreated. We also have to take into consideration the fact that things are not the worst as they've ever been. And, and anybody going around saying that, it's just not true. Uh, it's not. We, we've come a long way, and I'm thankful for that. These events had major consequences for the Reformation. Catholic princes blamed Lutheranism for the rebellion. So the princes got to kill all the people, and they put it on Luther because, after all, they were they were just going along with what Luther said, even though Luther told them not to. This led them to take measures against the spread of Reformation teaching in their territories. So the Catholic leaders used this as an excuse to stamp down the Reformation. Well, look at all these people. All these people were killed, and it's all because of Luther. we got to get rid of this. And they use it to their advantage. Many of the peasants, feeling that Luther had abandoned them, went away from Luther's teaching. Many of them turned to Catholicism, but some joined the Anabaptists. We'll get back to the Anabaptists later. But Luther's in, he, he can't win for losing. He, he, he's tried to do what he thought was right. He's taken a middle ground approach. He was sympathetic to the cause of the peasants, but he also knew the, re, knew the rebellion was not a good thing. It needed to be, it needed to be suppressed, but it didn't need to be 100,000 people getting killed. So what ended up happening, which most of the time happens when, when leaders try to be fair and do what they think is, is right, is they end up, nobody liked them. <laughs> they, the, the Catholic princes didn't like him, and the peasants didn't like him. He, he, he couldn't win on this situation, he didn't. And, and it was a cause of animosity going forward for some. We also need to look at some things that are going on in Luther's personal life at this time. As Luther's teaching spread, some began leaving the Catholic Church. A group of nuns in a convent asked Luther for his help. These nuns didn't have a place to go. They didn't have, they didn't have husbands that they were married to that would support them and give them a family to be a part of. There wasn't a whole lot of work to speak of that women could do. Being a nun was one of the rare things that a single woman could do. So they want to leave it. They want to, they want to leave that behind because they no longer feel that it's right for them to be in the Catholic Church. It's not right for them to be a nun and a convict, but they don't have anywhere to go. So they, Luther's the guy that started this. Let's ask him for help. Luther arranged their escape, then had to set them up with a position in a household or with husbands. So that was kind of their two places they could go. They could either be a, like a servant type person in a household. They would have a position there that, that would be a support for them. They would give them a place to live. It would give them a job, one of the very few jobs that a woman could hold at that time. And she could st still be a single woman and do that. Or the other solution was get them married off. You find them a husband, then the husband takes care of them after that. So that was his two, that was two places he would go. But there's one person that comes along that doesn't really go along with Luther's plan. One of these nuns, Katharina von Barra, would only agree to marry two men. And it just so happens that one of them was Luther. I don't know who the other guy was, but she said, I got two guys. I'll, I'll go along. I don't want to position a household. I want to be married. 
but I'm very picky. I'm only it's only one or two. And by the way, Luther, you're one of them. Well, Luther joked about it at first. He thought it was funny, but he eventually did marry Katharina. And as it turns out, their marriage was a happy one. They had a great marriage. Together, they had six children and also provided a home for a number of orphans and students. So they were taking care of people that needed to be taken care of. Luther's family life would be the model for many devout Germans for years to come. This is what a leader should be. He should be a family man. He should have a wife that he loves. He should have kids, and they should be open to even taking in those that didn't get the advantages of society, the advantage of a family or somebody to care for them. And so Luther, in this way, in his own personal life, this is a good thing, and and he's looked at it as an example of how to do this. During these years, Erasmus, who was sympathetic to Luther's teaching, ultimately turned against him because of Luther's dissension with the Catholic Church. Remember, Erasmus was the head of the humanists. All of them looked to him as their leader. And he was a guy that was for reform, but not for split. He, did, he would never support splitting off from the Catholic Church. He felt that the church needed to be reformed, but it needed to happen from the inside, not let's just break it all up. So while he was he, he liked a lot of what Luther had to say, he he ultimately he couldn't go with Luther when he split off from the church. So Erasmus chose to make a stand against Luther. He attacked Luther, but he did it on the issue of free will. There were there were a lot of his teachings that Erasmus really couldn't attack him on because he wouldn't have disagreed with them. But he, he chose this issue of free will. He published a treatise on free will. Luther responded by thanking Erasmus for having shown wisdom and centering on a fundamental issue. One of the things Luther said to his critics were, you're dealing with stuff that is not really the, the main thing. They, they would deal with other issues with Luther. Luther wanted to deal with teaching. He wanted to deal with correct theology. And so somebody that came along and wanted to debate him on one of those issues, he was all for, he was all for that. And he respected Erasmus, and he respected what he had to say. But Luther's not a guy who's going to back down. He also went on to defend his position of predestination, noting that the free will position did not take into account the tremendous power of sin and the powerlessness of humans to be rid of it. Historically, the church to this point did not, they took a, they took a stronger stand in free will than they did predestination. If you remember way back when we talk about when we talked about Augustine, Augustine was the guy that was the most influential person in Western theology, second only to the Apostle Paul. And so all of the people in this time, they all through the years after Augustine, they would look back on Augustine and his teachings. But there was one teaching that Augustine had that they didn't take, and that was predestination. He believed strongly in the sovereignty of God. He believed strongly in predestination. And largely those that followed him after him that loved his teachings and loved to use him as an example, they would not go along with the predestination. So they just didn't mention it. They didn't bring it up. They, it was kind of like, don't, you know, let's not talk about that. And they didn't, but Luther went along with it. And it's easy. You know, one of the things we're going to go through this and we'll see this more is that these reformers are huge on predestination. They're huge on the sovereignty of God. Well, remember, there's a reason for this. This is a reaction. They are reacting against what the Catholic Church has taught about how you come into right relationship with God. And the Catholic Church had put way too much on human, the human side of it, what you would do. 
the fact that you had to do works and you had to do penance and you had to go through the church and all of this stuff. Well, they're reacting against this. And so it's very natural that the reformers would have been big on predestination and the sovereignty of God. That was the side they're trying to bring back into balance. So they take an extreme view the other way. And we still have that, that kind of that clash to this day. We have those in theology and in the Protestant world that are very strong as the reformers were on predestination and the sovereignty of God. And then you have those that are the opposite way. They maybe not to the to the in the same way the the Catholic Church was in in saying that you had to do certain works in order to be to gain salvation, but to in the sense that it's there is a free will element in this, and man does have to make a response. So what are teachings that both are in Scripture in our day and time for for many it, it's still out of balance. And it started right here. It is very, it's easy to see why that tradition of predestination and sovereignty of God is very associated with the, with the Protestant Reformation because it's the element that they were trying to bring back into alignment. So not, not surprising that Luther was strong on this at all. This controversy led many humanists to abandon Luther, though some did continue to support him, most did not. The controversy over predestination and free will ended all hope of close collaboration between Luther and the humanists. So the humanists who admired Luther, who were very sympathetic to Luther, ultimately said, we have to abandon Luther. They were going to go with Erasmus, and they did it. And the issue that ended up being the split was the one that Erasmus intentionally picked because it was the easiest one for him to say there is, I, I can make a case for why Luther's wrong here. And that was the issue of predestination versus free will. And isn't it funny that that same issue is in a lot of ways divisive to this very day. And many Christians in the Protestant world have a real hard time with one another based on that particular issue. It hasn't gone away. It's still going on. Well, let's finally, let's look at the diets of the empire. After the diet of Worms, there's more diets that come along and they kind of, for a while, they soften their approach to Luther. Because the edict against Luther at the Diet of Worms had been result, the result of imperial pressure, nothing was done to enforce it once Charles V left the country. The people that went along with it, that made that edict, they didn't really agree with it. But if the emperor says you're going to do it, then you do it. But once he left and he wasn't back in Germany for a long time, because he's dealing with all these other problems, they just dropped it. They didn't change it yet, but they just said, let's just forget about it. But that did change when the Imperial Diet met again in 1523. It adopted a policy of tolerance towards Luther and his teachings. So they go back and say, let's let's erase what was done before and let's let's go back to more of a, a softer approach to Luther and that will be tolerant of what he has to say. We're not going to go out hard against it like the, the Diet of Worms, the Edict of Worms did. In 1526, the Diet of Spite formally withdrew the Edict of Worms. They took it away altogether and granted each of the German states the freedom to choose their own religious allegiance. A big deal. If you want to go along with Luther, you can. It's your choice. You make the decision. And so that's a real big turn from what the Pope and the Emperor wanted. But they did it, and they were able to get away with it because they were both, the Pope and the Emperor were concerned with other issues at that time. They couldn't go in and forced their will. Austria and many of the southern territories remained Catholic, but others began implementing the reforms of Luther. So all throughout Germany, you see in little pockets of, of communities and areas, 
Lutheranism is taking stronger and stronger, stronger hold because the opposition has gone away, and they can do that. In 1529, the second Diet of Spite reaffirmed the Edict of Worms, so now they've gone the other way. This prompted the Lutheran princes to present a formal protest, and thus they took on the name Protestants. Here is where Protestant comes in. They protested the second Diet of Spite that, that turned around the trend of being tolerant and, and took a hard line approach to them once again, and they, they protested that, obviously, and that's where the name came from. Charles V returned to Germany in 1530 to attend the Diet of Augsburg. This time, the emperor listened to the points of Luther's reform. So he comes in, he sees that things are taking hold, and he's not going to be able to throw his weight around quite the way he did before. So he decides, all right, let me listen to this. He was presented with a document now known as the Augsburg Confession. The emperor did not agree with the document and ordered those who signed the Augsburg Confession to recant by April of the following year. So this Augsburg's Confession was just them putting down the points of Lutheranism. Here's the stuff that Luther's being accused of being a heretic. The emperor didn't even know what it was. He just said, the church says he's a heretic, he's a heretic. Now he's actually been able to read it, but he uses it against him now. He's got, he's got this list of people that have signed this confession, and he knows who they are, and he's ordered anybody that signed it, you either recant by April of the following year or you're in big time trouble. So the emperor kind of pulled a dirty trick on him, and he got down in writing the ones that agreed with Luther. The Protestants refused and united to take up arms against the emperor. There's about to be a big-time military conflict over this, but then the events of history intervene again. Francis of France was again preparing for war against Charles, and the Turks were planning to launch another invasion. So here we go again. Just when it looks like there's about to be a blow-up, people are going to take up arms and fight it out over this Reformation some some other enemies come and get involved, and once again, the the call it coincidence, call it luck, call it fortune, call it quirky. It, it's really God and His plans. The 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 events of human history come into play, and they change what human beings intended to do. Charles needed a united Germany. Thus, Protestants and Catholics agreed to the Peace of Nuremberg in 1523. Protestants were given the right to practice their faith as long as they agreed not to extend it to other territories. But this promise they did not keep. The Protestants were not about to sit back and not extend their beliefs to other territories. They were dead set on extending it. So that's where we're going to stop today. We'll jump in with a little bit different take on things next week. We're not going to go back to the historical events. We're actually going to take a, a session and we'll talk about the, the theology of Luther. We'll break down the individual theological points that Luther made and how they differed from what was going on at the time and what he exactly said about them. So it should be very interesting at this point in this discussion. We really need to know that. So we'll take a week to do that next week. And then the following week, we'll jump back into the historical aspect of what's going on at the time. So I hope you enjoyed this again today. Thank you for taking time to listen, and I hope you have a great week, and God bless.